Good afternoon. Sovereign Grace Church, Pasadena. Good afternoon. It is good to be here worshiping with you this afternoon. My name is Tim Owens. I am a pastoral resident here at Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. As you just heard, Ron announced I'm nearing the end of the ordination process, which has been a good process, has been a blessing to me and my family. But we are going to take some time together in God's Word today. And if you are just joining us, we are in the midst of a series preaching through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And you might ask why we combine those into one preaching series, and that's because the earliest Hebrew manuscripts uh, treat them as one book, and it's because they tell the same story. They tell the story of the fledgling community of Israelites that God is bringing back out of exile in Babylon, back to the city of Jerusalem, and he is reforming them into his people. He's teaching them again, what does it mean to live and act and work and build distinctively as people of God? And today, this afternoon, we come to Nehemiah chapter 8. And this is very much a chapter that serves as a turning point for God's community in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 10, and maybe you could stretch that to include chapter 12, are the climax of the story. So the whole story arc of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're about to hit the climax. We have a brief moment where all of the physical rebuilding of the city, the, the temple has been rebuilt in the book of Ezra. Now the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt, and we get to turn our full attention to the hearts and minds of the people themselves. This is just a brief time, a picture of everything as it should be. Chapter 8 in particular is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and so I'm restraining myself from preaching for several hours. You'll be thankful to know. Uh, but I eagerly hope and pray that what God did for his people in chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah, that he will do that among us here today, but progressively more and more as we do life together as the church. So let's read it together. We're going to start at the very last verse of chapter 7. So chapter 773b and go on through the end of chapter 8. And then we will pray and dig into God's word. So Nehemiah 7, 73b. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside, beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to gather here today to worship you as a family, as a church, as your people. And we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that we are not gathered around our own opinions. We are not gathered around a hobby. We are not gathered merely around mutual interests. Father, we are gathered around the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God. Lord, would you cause us to revere, honor, and rejoice in your word today? Please bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, the LA Times ran an article about the, the ripple effect, the domino effect that biologists expect this incredibly wet winter to have over the next several years on California. And uh, the thing that was most intriguing to me is that biologists predict that this will not just have an impact this year, or next year, or even the next two or three years, but rather the, the biologists in the article expect it to have an impact for the next five to seven years. And now the, the first impact of all the rain and the snow in the mountains is immediate, and it is obvious, and it is this glorious spring that we're all enjoying right now in Southern California. Or if you have allergies that maybe you're not enjoying in Southern California, but we see it all around us. The mountains are green. The sagebrush in the canyons is thriving. The wildflowers are blooming. There's vibrancy in life. Now, that has an impact one step up the food chain. So all the fresh growth is going to support a larger than normal population of herbivores over the next several years. So the rabbits, the mice, the deer that feed on all this vegetation are going to have a larger than normal population over the next couple of years. And it's very interesting. Those animals, those species that reproduce quicker, you're going to feel that impact this year. But those species that reproduce more slowly, like the deer, you're not going to feel that impact until next year. And the article went out of its way to say then 
that it's going to go one step up the food chain. So when you have a lot of herbivores thriving, then the predators are going to thrive. And that's going to start with the birds of prey and the coyotes that eat the smaller animals. But eventually, it's going to make its way all the way up, to the, up the food chain to the mountain lions and the bears. And especially, I want to point out that after every extraordinarily wet winter in California, the article said that 18 months later, you can expect an unusually high population of snakes. So all you hikers out there, next summer, summer of 2024, be very careful. Okay. But three years from now, what do biologists expect to see? Three to five years from now, they expect to see a larger than normal salmon run in Northern California. Isn't that fascinating? This one wet winter, the salmon that are spawning now in the favorable conditions in the rivers, because the rivers are full of water, more of those baby salmon will survive and make it to the ocean this year. And then three to five years from now, when those salmon are adults, we'll have more salmon running up the rivers in California. And all of that comes back to one basic necessary element, and that is water. The vibrancy and growth of the entire ecosystem is very simple. When we have water, California is green and full of life. And when we don't, it is very dry. And so I have a question for you this afternoon. What is the water and food for the church? What is the water and food for the church? What causes spiritual life and vibrancy, growth and flourishing? What turns dry, cracked ground of a human heart that is weary, sinful, selfish, looking for nourishment in all the wrong places into a joyful, humble, fruitful, obedient follower of Christ. What can do that? What has the power to do that? Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 12 says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. For you, God, what do you purpose? What do you want to accomplish? For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Brothers and sisters, God's word is the water. The, the importance of this cannot be overstated. Just as plant and animal life are completely, entirely dependent on the rain and snow, in the same way, God has determined that spiritual life is created and sustained by the power of his word. In Nehemiah chapter 8, it is going to rain on God's people. After years of spiritual drought, God is going to bring revival. He's going to soften hard hearts. The community in Jerusalem is going to spring forth into vibrant, joyful, spiritual life. And God is going to accomplish this the way he always does, by the power of his word. Perhaps we can summarize the main point of Nehemiah 8 this way. God's word works on the soil of our heart to produce the fruit of joyful obedience. So the rain and snow of God's word it acts upon our hearts like soil. Trees do not produce good fruit if they are not in well-watered soil. It is crucial that we understand how this works in our spiritual lives and in the life of our church corporately. The spiritual ecosystem, if I can put it that way, of our church and the ripple effect in our families, neighborhoods, the city of Pasadena, all of that begins with God's word and its work in every individual heart in this room. Our text gives us three main points today. 
Point number one, the desire for God's word. That's in verses one through eight. Point number two, the impact of God's word in verses nine to 12. And point number three, the response to God's word, verses 13 to 18. Let's jump right into point number one, which is the desire for God's word. Now, before we think together about the meaning of the first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter eight, I just want to orient us to the timeline here. The wall has been the major project of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah was grieved that the wall was broken down. That reflected something about the people's belief in God, their lack of reverence for him. It was not glorifying to him, and it also left the community exposed. It was dangerous that the wall was broken down. That project has now been completed by God's good grace. But guess what? That project was only completed about five days before chapter 8, verse 1. So the question that we should be asking is why hold a solemn assembly five days after the huge project of completing the wall? So the last half of verse 73 of chapter 7, it says the people were all back home in their, in their towns. They were sleeping in their own beds for the first time in months. It took about 50 days to complete the wall. They've been working very hard, okay? Then they go home, and five days later, they come back to Jerusalem. This seems like poor scheduling, Nehemiah. Why hold the meeting five days after this? Well, verse 2 gives us a clue. Chapter 8, verse 2. It says that it is the first day of the seventh month, right at the end of verse 2. The first day of the seventh month, which is a particularly important month for the children of Israel. It's a particularly important month for the whole Jewish calendar because three of the corporate feasts that God has commanded the Israelites to observe in the book of Leviticus, they all fall in the seventh month. So on the first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets. On the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. And then on the 15th day of the seventh month begins the Feast of Booths, and that actually goes on for a whole week, so seven days of feasting and celebrating. So the seventh month was always meant to be set, a t- set aside as a time for celebration, and I want you to remember that. Like book, bookmark that in your mind. The seventh month is meant to be a time of celebration. And our text begins on the first day of the month the Feast of Trumpets. Now, if you've been following along, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you're familiar at all with the people of God before the exile, you'll know that these feasts didn't always go well. God was not always pleased with these celebrations. The question that should be on our minds and hearts is, will they worship? So they've gathered to Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Trumpets, but they have screwed this up before. Will they worship? Will sincere worship arise in their hearts? You see, in Amos 5.21, before the exile, God said this. They were doing this all wrong. Their feasts were superficial and self-serving. And God says, Amos 5.21, I hate your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Is that going to happen again? Is that what's going to happen here, just as the fledgling community is getting started? Well, we can see right from verse number one that this feast is going to be different. The people are not just going through the ritual motions. Let's look at verse number one, chapter eight, verse one. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, first, the first thing I notice here, and I want you to notice, is there's a remarkable degree of unity. The people gathered together as one man. This is a Hebrew phrase that speaks of a crowd being in such unison of purpose that when they do something all in step, it's as though it's only one person doing it. There's a remarkable degree of unity. Everyone's there. Nobody said, you know what? I'm not going to the feast. We just got done building the wall. I'm going to sit this one out, guys, but have a fun time in Jerusalem. No, there's a a remarkable degree of unity right from the first words of chapter 8. And then second, when was the last time the crowd told the preacher to go ahead and get started preaching? Okay, the author goes out of his way. The author could have described to us the events of chapter 8 by saying, and Ezra climbed up onto the wooden podium and opened the book of the law of Moses and began to preach. But something special was happening that day. 
And they needed to note it down for us, for our good. The people initiated it. They said, Ezra, go get the book of the law. We're ready to hear the book of the law. We want to hear it. We need to understand it. The people are asking Ezra to start preaching. And note, they don't say, we want Ezra. They don't say, go get the really eloquent preacher. Go get the great leader. No, they say what they want is God's word. The people's attention is focused on the right thing here. They are no longer distracted. They are united and they are thirsty for God's word. Now, as we read further, the evidence continues to mount that something special is happening here. In verses two and three, it repeats twice that it's not only all the adults, the men and the women, but there's this curious phrase, and everyone who could understand what was read. Who are they talking about? They already told us the men and women were there. Oh, they're talking about the children. They're talking about every child, anyone who was of an age to understand what was being said. So this is everyone except for the infants, okay? Anyone who could understand the law, they're there in the court of the water gate that day. Okay, verse 3, buckle up. And he read from it, the book of the law, facing the square before the water gate from when? What? From early morning until midday. Okay, so this is five or six hours. Okay, this is five or six hours, and so we immediately start to think, well, okay, so the first 30, maybe 40 minutes was really good, and then it really dropped off. Some people fell asleep. A few went to lunch. No, look at the end of verse 3. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. These people, they didn't sit because a few verses later, it's going to tell us they were standing from the moment when he opened the book. These people stood and listened attentively for six hours. Verse 5, the people stand in honor of God's word. Verse 6, we see that there's authentic worship happening. So what has happened to these people? Okay, these are these are the same people from the rest of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We remember these people. We know these people. We know that at the beginning of the book of Ezra, the people come back to Jerusalem, but they can't be bothered to get to work building the temple. God has to send the prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, to say, stop building your own homes. You're so consumed with your own comfort that you won't build the temple. You won't build my house. That's the same people who are now standing listening to a six-hour sermon begging for Ezra to bring the book of the law. Okay? This is the same people that has taken multiple generations to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They did not even start on the walls of Jerusalem until Nehemiah came. Okay? Ezra and Nehemiah, it's been like pulling teeth to get these guys to care about the things of God. They've been dragging their feet at every step along the way, but now they're united their hearts are fully engaged. They're taking initiative. God is obviously moving among them, but what specifically is he doing? Here at the climax of the story of the post-exilic people of God, when all the physical rebuilding projects are done, so now we get to focus on the hearts of the people, when significantly our two main characters, Ezra and Nehemiah, are mentioned together in the same text for the first time in the story, in this key moment, the text is absolutely clear about the most important thing for the spiritual health of God's people. And the answer is not Nehemiah. The answer is not Ezra. The answer is God's word. The spotlight here is on God's word the focus of Nehemiah chapter 8 is on a remarkable hunger for God's word and a response to God's word. God is mercifully allowing the people to experience, to feel how desperately they need the food and water of his word. They have been living for over 100 years in spiritual drought conditions, but they didn't realize it. They've been building houses and pursuing material comforts and planting fields and doing business deals. But meanwhile, their spiritual ecosystem was about to collapse 
for lack of water. And the first thing God does here in chapter 8 is to allow, allow them to feel how thirsty they are. He pulls back the curtain to show them the true state of their spiritual health, and it is not pretty. The grass is dead. The ground is hard. It is dry and cracked. And when the people see it, when they feel it for the first time in a century, they say, Ezra, give us the water. Bring God's word to us. And so Ezra preaches his heart out for six hours. And look, look at verse 7. Along with Ezra, 13 Levites are moving among the people. They're explaining, they're clarifying, they're interpreting, they're making sure that everyone can understand God's words. And verse 8 tells us that it worked, that they did understand. They were beginning to understand God's word. And as they heard the great truths of the Mosaic covenant washing over them, the old and the young, the men and the women, the kids, they all begin to weep. They cry, they listen to the preaching and understanding begins to sink into that dry, hard, cracked heart and the tears start flowing. And that brings us to point number two, the impact of God's word. Look with me at verse nine. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. What, what a beautiful moment. What a gift of God's grace. What a display, more importantly, of the heart-convicting power of this book. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stands up and preaches to another crowd in this very same city, the city of Jerusalem, this is how the people respond. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And like that crowd 400 years later, the returned exiles are cut to the heart. As they hear the reading of the law, they're confronted with a scary reality that they have ignored and broken the law of the omnipotent God who created them. Friends, the soil in our hearts, the spiritual ecosystem of this church, this is the first thing that we need. Repentance. This is the first thing that God's word does is it holds up to us a mirror and shows us how far short we have fallen of the holy law of our God. The first drops of rain after a spiritual drought, the first sign of grace and renewal is sorrow over sin. And it has always been this way. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, Ezekiel is describing the new covenant. And he makes a comment about what it's going to be like, what it's going to be like when you're saved from your sins in the new covenant, when you come to faith in Christ. And this is what he says, I, that is God, will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, our sin makes our hearts hard, insensitive, unresponsive, set in our own ways. But we have to pause. Do, do you feel the horror of that predicament? Apart from God's grace, our hearts, the center of our being, the control center of who we are, they're not only in bad condition. Jeremiah says that our hearts are desperately wicked, but that's not all. They're not only in bad condition, but they are stuck that way. They're cemented in that condition. They're like a rock. They're unresponsive to the things of God. They, our hearts are fixed on a path that James tells us can only end in death and then in eternal conscious suffering in hell. Eternal conscious suffering in hell. That, that is the just 
and fitting penalty for our monstrous rebellion against a good and holy God. And Nehemiah chapter 8 has just shown us that there is something that has the power to save us from that. There's something that has the power to rescue us from that path. There's something that can break through our hard-heartedness and cause us to weep over our sin. And that thing is the powerful word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says this, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. My friends, we have a heart problem. The community in Jerusalem had a heart problem. We need to weep and grieve over our sin. We need to repent, but we can't. Our hearts are dry. The tears won't fall. But God, he's coming to us. And he's saying, here, here's my sword. It can do it. My sword is sharp enough to pierce your hard heart. This is the thing that can do it the sword of the word of God. God is coming to us saying, sons and daughters, is your heart hard and dry? How I long to pour the water of my word out upon it. I have provided water and bread for your soul. Come to the waters and drink. So the people stand and they weep for hours as God's word begins to do its miraculous, heart-softening, convicting work that only it can do. But praise the Lord, brothers and sisters, that is not where our passage ends. Look again at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Okay, this day is holy. What, what should I do then? Do not mourn or weep. Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites, they're all united in one message repeated three times, once in verse 9, again in verse 10, and again in verse 11. This day is holy to the Lord your God, so don't weep. You should celebrate. What? Ezra, in particular, has been laboring, probably by Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra has been laboring and ministering among these people for 13 years. He has been agonizing over the hard-heartedness of these people for more than a decade. And we know that Nehemiah, just a couple chapters ago in chapter 5, he's wrestling with the same thing. He had to bring formal charges against the nobles because they were taking advantage of an economic downturn to charge high interest rates to the poor to oppress and exploit them. These men have been working and hoping and praying to see real conviction and remorse over sin, and now it's finally happening, and they stop everything, and they say, don't grieve, go have a party. What is going on here? This seems out of place, but we need to remember the context. You remember I said a few minutes ago that this is the first day of the seventh month. This is the Feast of Trumpets. What was the original purpose for this gathering? If we go back to Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 1, where God starts to describe the feast days to Moses, he says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are appointed feasts. The Feast of Trumpets is one of seven holidays that God has built into Israel's calendar, which, brace yourself, altogether add up to about 30 days of feasting per year. 30 days. I'm ready to sign up for the Jewish calendar. This is great. Okay, if you include the weekly Sabbath, the mandatory rest and feasting on the Sabbath, that adds up to about 80 days of mandatory feasting and rest every year. Okay, sacrifices were often involved 
and these mandatory feasts, but the accent on most of these holidays was on celebration, rejoicing, eating, drinking, and resting from your work. So Ezra, what's happening here? Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites, they are worried that the people are going to miss the whole point of the feast. They're going to miss the whole point of the seventh month. The people have understood half the truth of the law of Moses. They've understood something. They've understood how far short they fall, and they have rightly wept over their sin. But they've not yet experienced the joy that is always on the other side of weeping in the kingdom of God. Think, we, think with me for a moment about the seeming paradox of these feast days. Don't you feel slightly uncomfortable with the phrase holy feast? Do you? What if I change it to holy party? Feast isn't a word we use very often. Doesn't it seem like a contradiction in terms, a holy party? Uh, I don't know if I want to go to that party, okay? We, there, there's several reasons, several good reasons for our discomfort when we come to the feasting and celebration in the Old Testament. First, the world's idea of a party has tainted our view of celebrations. We're used to feasts and parties being places where sin runs rampant, where our worst impulses are on display, there are opportunities for escapism and shallow entertainment. We have trouble imagining a party unto the Lord. But secondly, and more fundamentally, if we are honest with ourselves, the Lord's holiness does not typically make us want to rejoice. It doesn't make us want to celebrate. When we are confronted with God's holiness, often, and I think rightly, the first thing we are confronted with is, how, is our own sin, our own wickedness and evil, how far short we fall of his perfect standard. And that causes us sorrow, rightful sorrow. His holiness makes us painfully aware of our unholiness. But praise God that that is not all that it's meant to do. God's holiness, which is communicated to us in his holy and errant inspired word, causes us to weep so that, it causes us to weep so that we might rejoice. The feast stood as a beacon for God's people, a tangible, visible message that though they have broken the covenant and they deserve death, just like you and I do, there is something in the heart and plans of our holy God for which the only fitting response from God's people is celebration. Have you stopped to consider that if we do not rejoice, the rocks will cry out? If we do not celebrate, we are misrepresenting the heart of our God and Father. We have a God and Father who has given us such gifts of love, grace, mercy, that we must well up and celebrate. We must eat and drink and send portions to those who have none. But how is it possible to do that before a holy God? Given who we are and what we have done. You see, the Old Testament people of God, they did not yet know how God would deal with their sin. They didn't know how God could possibly be holy and merciful. But God gave them celebrations, holidays, feasts, that spoke a different word than the law. These feasts radiated with the joy that there is mercy in the heart of our God, that our God is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And on this side of the cross, we know how God resolved the paradox, the paradox of holiness and mercy, the paradox of the holy party. We know that it's possible to have a holy celebration because God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the holy life that we could not live, to die the death that we ourselves deserve to die so that by faith in him, we can be forgiven and set free from the penalty of sin and death. And so we do grieve and weep over our sin, but we must never stop there. We must let God's word carry us through the conviction and grief all the way to the rejoicing about what Christ has accomplished. And it is this rejoicing in particular that fits us for obedience. Look at verse 10. 
do not be grieved. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah takes it a step further. The people need to rejoice in Nehemiah chapter 8, not only as an appropriate response to God's mercy and love, but also because it is going to be their strength to take the next several steps along the path of following God. If we don't allow God's word to have its full effect on us, to take us all the way to rejoicing, even even though we grieve over sin, even though we look around and we, we must grieve over the brokenness in the world around us, the tragedy, the heartbreak, the suffering, we must grieve over those things. We're commanded to do so. But we must also allow the gospel to bring us out of that tunnel of grief into rejoicing at God's love and mercy because if we do not, we will not have the strength to serve him. If Christianity is merely grief, if it's merely a duty, we won't have the heart resources that we need to obey and follow him. How can I illustrate this? Years ago, maybe eight to ten years ago, I shared this illustration with you, and I'm going to share it again because I like it so much. Uh, as you know, I'm a trail runner. I love running in the mountains, and trail, runner, trail running takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of strength. It can, it can really leave you weary and exhausted, but because I enjoy it so much, I'll run miles and miles. So, in fact, for my birthday, I decided to go up and run 12 miles up in the mountains above Pasadena. That's what I consider a good time. So that's just the kind of person you're dealing with here. I want to run 12 miles in the mountains. But when it's my turn to do the dishes at home, all of a sudden I'm real tired. Oh, man, yeah, Dad's tired today, guys. If the kids could just step in to help with this one. So what's the difference? Running 12 miles in the mountains, something that's much more physically rigorous than doing the dishes, lots of energy. I can do that all day. Oh, time to do the dishes. Ooh, yeah, I better sit down. The difference is joy. This is not rocket science. We have energy for the things we enjoy. We have energy that's produced by joy. And that's exactly what we see in this text, and it brings us to our final point, our response to God's word. Look at verses 13 and 14. On the second day, so this is the day after the Feast of Trumpets. The feast is over. There's no need, there's no statutory need, there's no command that they come back again and do this. So this is the second day. This is, they're, they're taking this next step because of the work that happened in their hearts the day prior. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses, so this is the leaders of the people, with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Pay very close attention. When God's word starts to act on the soil of our hearts and it creates contrition over sin and joy at the mercy and forgiveness we find in Christ, the first fruit of that is that it sends us back into God's word to learn more. When we repent of our sins and we weep over them and then we experience the joy of discovering a merciful, gracious, and loving God on the, on the other side of that weeping, our first impulse is to find out, what more can I do to please and obey this God? What more does this word that so radically changed my life yesterday, what more does it have to say to me? The first thing it does is it sends us back into God's word. Verse 14, And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feasts of the seventh month. So in verses 13 through the end of the chapter, the, whole, the verses deal with a very specific piece of the law in Leviticus chapter 23, that the Feast of Booths, which was meant to remind the children of Israel of how God rescued them from Egypt, and they lived in temporary shelters in the desert for 40 years. So the Feast of Booths is a seven-day celebration where they're supposed to make with palm fronds, branches, leafy branches. They're supposed to make temporary shelters. They're not supposed to sleep in their comfortable beds. They're supposed to make a little tent in the front yard and sleep out there to remember how God saved them from Egypt and brought them through the desert. But 
Our text tells us in verse 17 that they have not done that part. They haven't obeyed that aspect of the law since when? Since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. That was more than 500 years before Nehemiah chapter 8. Take note, the revival, the spiritual renewal that the people experienced through the preaching of God's word at the Feast of Trumpets, the first thing it caused them to do was to go back with eager attention and analyze their Bible more closely to discover, look, there's this small provision in the law that we haven't been following specifically for 500 years. And although I imagine it was very inconvenient to decide for seven days I'm going to like sleep under this like self-made shelter uh, out here in the courtyard, all of a sudden it's nothing. They're rushing to get the branches. What has happened is that God's word has produced a situation in the hearts of these people that rebounded into joy, that rebounded into energy to obey the tiniest piece of God's word. The, the thing that was least convenient for the last 500 years for God's people, all of a sudden they're exuberantly, vibrantly rushing to obey. That is the obedience of faith. That's what the Christian life is supposed to feel like, taste like. That's the experience. My friends, aren't you glad that we serve a God who is not interested in joyless, mechanical obedience? Okay, aren't you glad to serve a God who wants to win our whole heart over to him? Don't you see the picture that Nehemiah chapter 8 is painting? Christians are supposed to be the most emotionally whole and healthy people on earth. Christians are supposed to be the people who are able to cry over things that are truly grievous, like our sin and the evil and suffering that sin is causing in the world, and who also rejoice better, quicker, more often than anyone else on earth because they're most in tune with the goodness and grace of our Creator God. That's what the community of God is supposed to look like. And when we do that, when we grieve over what is evil in us and in the world around us and rejoice and the glorious things God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that joy gives us energy to go back to our Bibles and learn how to obey and serve him with every future day of the rest of our life. The worship team can come on up. As we consider together how to apply Nehemiah chapter 8 to our hearts and lives, this afternoon, I have two encouragements for you. First, it's possible that you're sitting here in the room today and that you actually do not know the kind of grief over sin and joy over God's mercy that I'm talking about. It's possible that you've never experienced this, that you have, in fact, never been broken over your own sin. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you to talk to one of us. Come talk to me after the service. Talk to Pastor Ron, to Bill. Talk to someone on the row beside you. There is nothing in this life that can satisfy you like the Lord Jesus Christ can. There is nothing in this life that will lead to a more joyful celebration, a more joyful feast than the truths that this book has for you. Oh, I encourage you to pick up your Bible. Get a copy of the Bible. If you don't have one, I will give you mine. And start reading. And read until you weep. And then keep reading until you rejoice at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second, maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for years. And I want to ask you, are you stuck in the weeping this can look different ways. This could be the Christian who is so much more aware of their own sin, of their own shortcoming, of their own insecurity, that they're constantly anxious, worried, despondent, sad, that they're never getting out of the grieving over their sin into the rejoicing. It can also look like a dullness that has set in on your heart, where you realize, if you're honest, I am in a spiritual drought it's dry. The duties of Christianity are dull to me now. My heart is unresponsive. 
I'm not excited to go to community group. I don't really care if I miss the Sunday meeting. I haven't picked up my Bible. I have not gone to the well of water that God has provided for us for months. If that is you, I want to invite you back. Let me play the role of Ezra and Nehemiah gently for you. Stop grieving. This day is holy to the Lord. If if our lives are dull, despondent, predominantly sad, predominantly marked by worry and concern over sin that Jesus paid the full price on the cross to redeem us from, if that is us, then we are not only misrepresenting our good and gracious God to a watching world, but I bet you're also finding it very hard to continue walking in his ways because the joy is what's meant to give you the strength to do it. When you read your Bible, and I encourage you to go back to the source, go back to the water of the word with this question in your head. Am I only seeing the ways that I fall short Do I read my Bible and I only come away, I only ever come away beat down, convicted, discouraged? Do I skip over the evidence of God's love and grace or do I just not believe it? I read it, I see it there, Jesus died for me, I see it, but it doesn't do anything to stir up joy in my heart. Oh, friends, let the grace of God wash over you again, starting from today. Let joy well up. Give your mind and your heart to thinking about the bedrock truths of a God who sent his only son to die on a cross to save you so that you can be adopted, so that you can be set free of your sins, so that you can be given a purpose and a future and a hope and an inheritance and a place in heaven forevermore so that no matter what the circumstances are of your life today, you and I have cause to rejoice When was the last time you felt stirred to celebrate, to call your friends and have a party because of what God has done in your life? That is the takeaway from Nehemiah chapter 8. Go and celebrate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, for this opportunity to meditate together on your word. Oh Lord, we are very aware aware that we cannot stir up in our hearts grief over sin or joy over our salvation. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to cause your word to come more fully to life in our hearts than it ever has before. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing this song, Show Us Christ, in response to what we've just heard.